0: Well, it's the international cover story this week. It's about something that we were all mesmerized by for one week back in March when Global Shipping Tim came to a halt when the Ever Given got stuck in the Suez Canal and how it happened, that's a story. It's the international cover.
1: And joining us now is Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Also joining us, Kit Shalel, senior writer at Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from London. Joel, I learned more about shipping <laughs> and the Ever Given than I've ever thought I could know when yeah. I read this piece. Well, uh,
2: you know, if you, everyone became an expert for a week, right? And then the moment that it got dislodged and was able to move again, everybody forgot about it. And that's exactly when Kit was like, do you want to know everything? And I was like, yes, tell me everything. And thus began the Odyssey to explain not only how the Evergiven got stuck, but the quagmire that it finds itself in now. Um, kit there's so much fabulous reporting um can we just start with the audio
3: the the audio from the bridge
2: yeah what happened one of
3: the one of the one of the things that got me excited about this story was I felt like I didn't still didn't understand how this ship had crashed you know it's a straight canal it's not technically very challenging in some ways it was windy but you know, it's always windy in Egypt at that time of year, so I didn't really understand what was going on. Uh, and then we discovered the existence of uh, the VDR, which is the Voyage Data Recorder, that records all the conversations uh, that are held in the bridge of a ship like this. So the Egyptian authorities had access to everything that happened on the bridge before, during, and after the crash. And because the ship was seized by the Egyptian authorities and because there was an ongoing legal dispute, we were starting to get wind that, some of the evidence from 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 that transcription from that audio was going to emerge. We might find out what caused the crash.
2: And and obviously, um, we didn't get to hear it because it's under uh, lock and key in, in Egypt. But one of the things that um, we learned was that um, the the captain actually uh, got conflicting information. Um, and and what? How did that transpire? According to the the our reporting that you guys were able to get.
3: So what what we do know about what happened on the bridge when the ship crashed was there was a chaotic situation. These uh, these pilots had uh, boarded the ship, Egyptian pilots whose job it is to steer giant ships through the canal. Uh, they spoke mainly in Arabic, and on the bridge also was the captain, who's an Indian gentleman, and his crewman, who uh, who spoke mainly in English. And there was this situation where there a dispute emerged about whether it was too windy to enter. And then once they were inside the canal, how to keep the ship on a straight keel. And the argument became quite forceful and the pilots threatened to leave. And while all this was while this was going on, they lost control of the vessel and it crashed.
1: So what about now? Because I think, as Joel said, and I I think people were obsessed with this story for six days and then so many people like we do with, with, with big stories. I think as, as consumers, we move on. And I think people were really surprised to find, and have been re- really surprised to find, that hey, the status of the Ever Given right now is kind of still up in the air.
3: Yeah, I think most people just assumed the ship had sailed out right. of the and gone about its business. But uh, no, it was, it was seized shortly afterwards. It never left the Suez Canal. It's in fact still there because the Egyptian government is seeking a billion dollars or so in compensation from the ship owner. And really the only leverage that the Egyptian authorities had was the ship itself, so they refused to let it leave. And the crew and the captain found themselves almost as pawns in this in this big-money game. Um, and they're still there. Uh, just this week, it looks like there's going to be a settlement, um, that they've reached a tentative settlement, and uh, the, the crew and captain will be hoping they can leave in the next few weeks. But, you know, uh, there, are, there are stories of sailors who have, been stranded on vessels in the Suez Canal over legal disputes and and stayed there for years. So it's a really bad situation for the crew in particular.
0: Well, and what's interesting is, and you really shed a lot of light, um, Kit, on this, is that there's a lot of parties involved in these massive ships. There's the owner of the ship. There's companies that provide the people who are on the ship. And then you've got the Egyptian pilots who come on and help it through the canal. And there's a lot of finger pointing, it sounds like, at this point. Because from what I understand, and you're reporting to, those pilots were bickering while they were going through the canal, and they were bickering when they came off the ship as well.
3: Yeah, modern shipping is really complicated. Things get messy whenever there's a legal dispute because you've got the owner of the ship, the the crew of the ship, the owners of the cargo. There were 17,000 containers on board the ship holding things like Nike shoes and Lenovo laptops. Uh, You've got the insurers involved, ultimately, are going to pay the bill. You've got the Egyptian government. All these different parties have different interests, and it gets really complicated
2: my other favorite scene in the story kit is the court scene that that went down and and what can you tell us about what transpired there
3: it was this amazing day in the court in Ismailia, uh which is almost exclusively for shipping disputes that happen in the canal um and we just we were we were fortunate to to happen to be there when the ship owner um suddenly uh pulled out a new legal strategy until that point the conversations had been very civil, and it looked like they were working towards a settlement. When we were in court, that all changed, and they suddenly played their, their wild card, which was to say, it wasn't our fault, this crash. The Egyptian authorities and the Egyptian pilots bear some of the blame, and we have this audio from the bridge that proves it. Um, uh, so it was actually it was very dramatic in court, and was very tense, and um, it was a remarkable scene.
1: The ship's kit are getting bigger. The Suez Canal is so important to global trade. I was so surprised after reading this that this hasn't happened many times in the past. It, to me, seems just like a matter of time until this happens again, considering that, well, the ships are getting bigger.
3: So here's an interesting thing. Uh, The day before the canal was completed in the 19th century, just before they were about to uh, hold the first ceremonial flotilla of vessels along it, they had an incident the night before, and a ship got stuck and blocked the canal, and it took them all night to free it. You know, it's a, it's a narrow channel. It's 200 meters wide in places. That sounds like a lot, but modern container ships are so enormous that there's not a lot of spare. Uh, and in a way, it is amazing this hasn't happened before. You know, 50 ships going through each and every day, mm-hmm. and it really is only a matter of time before one of the really big ones gets stuck again.
0: I don't want to end. I want you to just keep going. Uh, Kit, this is an incredible story, a great write-through, and I highly recommend everyone pick up the magazine. Go to Bloomberg.com, businessweek.com, or the Bloomberg and check it out. Kit Chalel, senior writer at Bloomberg News, Joel Weber, editor of the magazine.
3: You're listening to Bloomberg
0: Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. So in public today, healthcare platform Doximity, an investor raised $606 million after pricing an IPO above the marketed range. This is uh, according to the company, the profitable San Francisco based company selling 23.3 million shares, 26 bucks each after marketing them for 20 to 23. Let's get more on the IPO and the outlook for the business. I should point out shares of Doximity flying in their first day of trading up 75%, up more than $19 at 45.11 a share. Doximity Chief Financial Officer, Anna Bryson joins us on the phone from the New York Stock Exchange Anna, good to have you here with Tim and myself on Bloomberg. Congratulations. The IPO uh, out of the gate really strong. First of all, when this happens, we've got to ask, do you feel like some money was left on the table?
4: No, absolutely not. We're really, really proud and happy that we had a positive outcome for our physicians who participated in this IPO. Uh, We had over 10,000 physicians participating in this IPO, and and that's more important to us than um, any additional funds for, for our company.
1: Explain what you mean by that, because increasingly we are seeing companies uh, offer shares when they do go public to uh, groups of people who traditionally don't get to participate in IPO. So explain what you did.
4: Yeah, so we did a directed shares program for our physicians, which enabled them to participate in the IPO at the offer price. And it was critical for us because the physician is at the core of the mission. Uh, physician First is our guiding principle. And the physician's really the reason that we've been able to build this leading digital platform for medical professionals. So they're the reason we're here. Uh, so it was very, very important for us to, to have them participate in the IPO.
1: I'm wondering how you communicated this to physicians, because in preparing for this, this interview, I, I did reach out to a friend of mine who's a, who's a doctor. And I told him I was interviewing executives from the company today. Uh, and he actually didn't even know it, it was going public.
4: Interesting. Uh, we did we did send out a, a lot of emails. Um, we we contacted all of our physician members uh, via email to give them the opportunity to participate uh, in in the offering. So um, it was mostly for our physicians that that do use our platform. Yeah. Uh, well, I can- should say
1: he uses the free tier. I don't know if that if that matters.
4: Oh no! It, 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 as long as he's using our platform, it, it does not to us. We did not discriminate over it if there's any paid uh, version or if it's free, um, but we, we did send out
0: email blasts to many of our well, members. I uh, should
1: tell them, this is why you have to be sure to read your email. <laughs>
0: exactly, check well, that spam filter, check that spam yeah, exactly. filter. Well, Anna, what I understand is you've got 1.8 million verified members uh, on the platform. Of those 1.8 million, how many did actually participate in the Directed Shares Program?
4: We had over 10,000 positions participate in the Directed Shares Program.
0: All right, good to know. So tell us about the metrics going forward. I mean, you've got multiple tiers. one is free, as Tim just mentioned, and his, his friend that taps into that. Uh, you've got a, what almost 20 dollars a month uh, as a provider that you can tap into, and then hospitals are also tapping into it. Um, that's, the, that's how you, that's the financial model going forward.
4: Yeah, so we actually sell, almost all of our offerings are free for our physicians. So all of our mm-hmm. tools are free for our physicians. We do have a premium feature of our telehealth tool that uh, we, we do sell to our physicians for, like, as, as you mentioned, about $20 a month. Uh, but the main way we monetize is by selling into the, the healthcare space. And healthcare is an industry that's long been very under-indexed on digital spend, and it's in the midst of a digital transformation. And we currently work with 20 of the top 20 hospitals and 20 of the top 20 pharmaceutical companies and that's the main way to monetize. So RM is is never to make to make yeah. money uh, out of doctors' pockets, uh, but but to focus on on the healthcare as an industry.
0: All right. So what does the healthcare space get out of it? Uh, and and I'm assuming then that that's the bulk of your revenues in terms of percentage wise.
4: Uh, that's correct. Um, so a health, a health system customer would use us in order to ag- engender referrals. So we allow them to potentially connect with a colleague uh, or a key opinion leader uh, in order to. Give brand, share brand awareness about what's happening at, at that hospital or what's the new, the new therapy they're, they're focusing on in order to engender referrals.
1: How did it grow during the pandemic? Because the doctors who I've spoken to have talked a lot about how uh, it offers telehealth and it gave them an opportunity to also contact their patients, not just through telehealth, but also by calling them from their cell phones, uh, but making it look like you could actually were calling from the office.
4: Yeah, yeah, that's that's one of our one of our favorite features. Uh, You know, during the pandemic, these positions have have long been using our tools um, for for a multitude of years. We've we've been in place for 2010, Mm -hmm. um, and during the pandemic, they when. You know, physicians couldn't see any of their patients face to face. They they started using our telehealth tools uh, dramatically at at a much a much faster pace. Uh, and we were really proud to do our part in the pandemic and give back. And we actually didn't even start charging for any of the telehealth features at all, uh, even to our health systems until January first. So we really gave it away for free for that those first. Uh, eight or nine months of the pandemic. And and that was really, really critical for us. We were very proud to do that.
0: It sounds like, Anna, ultimately, I think about companies that outsource back office operations or customer service operations. And it feels like in many ways, you guys are looking to do that for the medical community, doctors specifically, and the doctor communities at major hospitals. Is that what it's ultimately about?
4: Uh, That's exactly right. We have a a multitude of ways in which uh, physicians can use us, but we want to enable them to collaborate with their colleagues, stay up to date with the latest medical news and research. They can manage their careers. They can conduct virtual patient visits. We're we're replacing that that fax machine and some of the the more antiquated technology that that they've been using for so long, and um, we're trying to be a, a, a smartphone hub, really, for them.
0: Listen, research is a tricky one. How do you how do you stay ahead and make sure you do have the latest and greatest research for those members on the platform? Just got about 30, 35 seconds left here.
4: Yeah, of course. Uh, we do physician summits. We are constantly connecting with our physician members and getting feedback from them in order to grow our product suite for them. So they are directly involved in our product roadmap.
0: How big can this company become? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just wondering because it sounds like you guys have a lot more revenue streams that you can pursue. Forgive me. We just got about 20 left.
4: Uh, I think we have a tremendous organic opportunity ahead of us. As I mentioned, healthcare is an industry that is in the midst of a digital transformation, and uh, we look forward to you know, continuing on this journey and, and seeing where it can go. And I'll I'll get back to you on that one. All right,
0: we'd love that. We'd love to hear more. We've talked to Peter Alperin, who's on Doximity, and uh, we've talked to him a lot throughout the pandemic. So look forward to uh, more on this company. Anna Bryson, thanks, CFO at Doximity, on the phone from New York uh, from the New York Stock Exchange. The stock up about seventy five percent its first day of trading. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Messer and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio this is among our most read stories on the bloomberg and you'll understand why in a moment it's about the billionaire co-founder of paypal a vocal opponent of higher taxes who tim amassed billions in a tax-free roth ira according to a pro publica report wait what
1: okay so how does this sound uh turn less than two thousand dollars into a fortune worth more than five billion dollars and the cherry on the on top tax-free. How do I
0: do that? Let's ask Ben
1: Steverman, <laughs> personal finance editor at Bloomberg News. He's joined us here in the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. How did Peter Thiel do it?
5: <laughs> well, you know, these Roth IRAs, they were really designed for the middle class. If you make a certain amount of money, you can't even open one. And, uh, and the contribution limit right now is $6,000. When Peter Thiel opened this, according to ProPublica, the contribution limit was $2,000. So how do you get um, $5 billion out of $2,000. Well, he did it. Um, what he was, he PayPal at that time, which he co-founded, was a private company and he took some shares which um, were supposedly valued at a tenth of a cent per share. He took about 2 million of them and stuffed them into this IRA and then within months, less than a, about less than a year, the value just skyrocketed to millions of dollars. So that, that raises the question of like, Were these shares actually worth 10 cents uh, or a tenth of a cent at the time? Maybe not. But what he's been able to do very skillfully, ProPublica showed, is move from PayPal, which is incredibly successful, to Facebook, which was incredibly successful, onto Palantir Technologies. And it's now $5 billion. Because
0: once that – he was then allowed to play with that money within that fund, correct?
5: Yes. And the money – this is the thing. It's the money – a traditional IRA, when you take the money out, mm-hmm. you pay taxes. A Roth IRA, once it's in there, it's tax-free forever, for your, for the rest of your life at least. Right. And um, uh, it, it, as long as he waits until he's 59 and a half, which is the rule, you have to be a certain age to access these retirement accounts, he pays no money when he pulls the money out. Mo- pays no taxes when you pay some money out. Sweet. So we were talking about this
1: story all day. We talked about it on Quick Take earlier with uh, Douglas Bonaparte. He's um, a registered investment advisor. Uh, he's big on Twitter, and we asked him the question of, of whether it's legal, and because it, it's getting so much outrage, he told us it's it's perfectly legal. But still, now there are there is pushback already from um, Democrats right now about trying to close this loophole.
5: Well, what's legal is. Um, is, is what is, is the idea of putting, you know, putting this, making a really smart bet and then like having it explode. That makes total sense. The question really is, um, what was, were the PayPal shares really at the value that he said Ah. they were? So the IRS could have back in the day, gone in and that challenged them. Mm -hmm. But as we know, the IRS budget has been just been gutted. They don't have the resources to go after these folks. And there's a ton of people in Silicon Valley who try this trick. Um, Peter Thiel got lucky. Um, you know, he, he put in the right stock at the right time, and it just exploded.
0: This goes to, when we're talking about the infrastructure plan, how to pay for it, you know, putting more money into the IRS to kind of go after some of these individuals who've been able to really avoid, you know, or just come up with some interesting tax strategies. The thing is, in your story, and you point out, and I guess from some of the ProPublica data, he's not alone in doing this.
5: No, no. Um, I mean, maybe
0: not to this extreme, but nonetheless, there are others who've done it. There's
5: definitely others in Silicon Valley who've done this exact technique. Um, A more common thing is something called a backdoor Roth uh, conversion, where you take a traditional IRA... You pay some taxes on it, a bunch of taxes on it, and then you convert it into a Roth. That's completely legal. It was a way that the George W. Bush administration tried to raise some short-term revenue at the cost of some long-term loss to the, to the treasury. Um, that's, that's something Warren Buffett has used. Right. Um, and that's what the ProPublica story showed. But um, Ron Wyden, the Senate Finance Chair, has proposed somehow limiting Roth IRAs to five million dollars. Basically, saying over five million, maybe you get taxed or something. I'm not sure exactly how that would work. But he's come out. He put out a proposal a few years ago, and he just said today he's planning to bring it back. Hmm. Today's story is part of
1: a, a, a bigger picture of, of, about wealth and what we've learned about the wealthiest people in the country when it comes to taxes. And I'm and I'm wondering how the story plays out in Washington, because we, we have heard Democrats specifically, Elizabeth Warren is among them, um, calling for ways to make sure that some of these loopholes, I know I keep calling it a loophole, I don't want that to be a legal definition, but the ways that, that some of these people have been able to, um, you know, uh, uh, uh,
5: not pay what many people say is their fair share. Yeah, so ProPublica has gotten somehow gotten their hands on these confidential tax documents. It's very controversial, and there's an investigation of how they got their hands on these things. But they're planning a series of stories using these insights. And so we already know from previous reporting by them that a lot of billionaires in this country really don't pay any taxes, or they're able to offset their income um, with uh, losses and uh, really aren't paying what you would expect a billionaire to pay just because they're able to manipulate the tax code and manipulate the amount of income they recognize.
0: I mean, we've heard from billionaires over the last few years when it comes, you know, that they acknowledge that there are tax strategies completely legal, but that enable them to not pay a lot in taxes. And it's an interesting, Ben, I feel like backdrop, especially as, you know, there are talk, talk in Washington about kind of what to do in terms of maybe new tax policy. Yeah, I mean, I think some, really pays for, for taxes. Yeah,
5: I think this might raise the pressure on Congress to do something. It's mm-hmm. hard for Congress to, to 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 raise taxes. It's 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 hard for a lot of wealthy people are in Congress who are using these techniques. Um, they're very some of these are very common. Um, the Peter Thiel thing, um, five billion dollars in a Roth IRA, that's an extreme outlier.
0: Peter Thiel, say anything.
5: He does, has not responded to comment.
0: All right, just trying to be fair. Um, good stuff, as always. Ben Steverman, he is our personal finance editor. Check him out at Steverman on Twitter uh, here at Bloomberg News. I'm
3: driving my car.
0: I turn on the radio. Hey,
3: how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive?
5: Just
2: drive, baby. It's the question that
3: drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us. Dawn on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Tick-tock, everybody. About ten and a half minutes left in today's trading session. We are definitely off our lows of this session, holding near our highs when it comes to the Dow Jones Industrial Average, as you just heard Doug talk about. Let's get to it. Uh, Our drive to the close with Matt Tuttle. He is Chief Executive Officer, also Chief Investment Officer at Tuttle Capital Management. He's joining us on the phone from Greenwich, Connecticut. The firm, by the way, it's a money management firm offering thematic and actively managed ETFs. Hey, Matt, nice to have you here. What's on your mind today when it comes to the financial markets
6: well i mean it's it's a bull market the fed left the punch bowl out looks like we're getting infrastructure we got second quarter you know, we got earnings coming out next month and analysts probably underestimated stuff so you know we we love what we're seeing um you know definitely still like buying the dips hmm
1: You mentioned infrastructure. We got to talk more about it because uh, the Dow is significantly outperforming the other major indices because of optimism about infrastructure. Is that telling you that investors certainly seem uh, that to to think that this actually this bill will become law, even though it is on this dual track with the quote, you know, softer infrastructure package that progressives want.
6: You know, I think that's part of it. But to me, the bigger thing is the fact that value sold off you know, in in a real big way last week. And, you know, you've really got, you know, a situation where things are going back and forth, but investors are buying the dip. So, you know, it makes sense that, you know, a day like today, you've got value, you've got financials doing really well, which got, you know, really crushed last week. So I think that has probably even more to do with it than the infrastructure deal.
0: Hmm. Matt sounds like you're on an infrastructure site right now and you're building a building <laughs> sounds like you're outside hey you know you are very bullish it sounds like you said you love what we're seeing you're buying the dips what specifically
6: so you know specifically we're, we're buying the value stocks we're buying the reopening play you know we we love to buy stuff when it goes down and that stuff went down last week we're, we're we love the meme stocks you know hmm. we don't think that's we don't think that's going away, you know, anytime soon. Uh, so, you know, th- those are our favorite things right now. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the memes and it's the value.
0: The FOMO folks.
6: The, the FOMO, well, we, we have the FOMO ETF, so yeah, the, we, we love the FOMO folks. We're, we're big into, you know, buying anything that's going up.
1: So tell us how the FOMO ETF works.
6: So the FOMO ETF is is designed to be able to go into whatever themes happen to be hot at the moment, which includes the meme stocks. So, you know, we start off with kind of figuring out what at any given point in time is FOMO. So right now, it's stocks that are popular with retail investors. It's, you know, stocks that are the meme stocks or maybe the future meme stocks or stocks It can have short squeezes. It's stocks that are popular with hedge funds, and it's innovative technology. So we start off with that basket, and then we're looking for, you know, what is in an uptrend, and and we're going to buy that and and try to keep riding it up. But we're also looking for what has been in an uptrend but has recently sold off. Mm. And we're looking to buy into those names as well. And really, the portfolio is split 50-50 between stocks that are currently going up and stocks that had been going up, but it had sold off recently. And that, that tends to smooth things out a lot.
0: Just looking at some of your top holdings, I mean, it reads kind of like a who's who of Some of the corporate space, Coca-Cola's in there, Walmart's in there, Lockheed Martin, United Health, Invitation Home, Cisco Systems, not the Food Cisco, but the Tech Cisco. Uh, how much yep. movement are you guys doing back and forth, though, if you're trying to kind of play the wins here of what might gain, what might not? Because it sounds like that cr- will c- can create a lot of activity.
4: Yeah,
6: I mean, we... Uh... Sorry about the train going by.
0: See, I knew you, you were college, outside.
6: <laughs> I am. Um, I'm at the train station.
0: We rebalance
6: the fund on a weekly basis. So, yes, there is a lot of movement back and forth. You know, the idea is we want to stay in harmony with what's going on in markets. So, you know, we don't – there are a bunch of index funds that rebalance like twice a year, Mm -hmm. four times a year. I mean, that's just not – so much is going on so quickly. You can't stay in harmony with what's going on. So we rebalance every week.
1: Huh. Um, When you say the meme stocks are here to stay, what do you mean by that? Do you mean that the meme stocks are there's going to be like a new meme stock each and every week or every few days, something that's talked about in Wall Street Bets because we have access to commission free trading from in the palm of our hands? Is that what you're saying?
6: So basically, yes. And it's more than commission free trading. It's you've got a group of retail investors now that have access uh, the same quality information that you know we as institutional investors have access to, but the biggest piece of it is they're connected now, you know, through these chat rooms, Wall Street bets, and you know, stock twists, and all of these things, so they can wield influence that you know, is, is as powerful as, as any institutional investor. So yeah, I mean it's You know, it's not going to always be GameStop and AMC. At some point, those things are, you know, fundamentals are going to come back, and those will crumble, but they'll be on to the next and on to the next. This is something that's not going away. These guys have power now, and what history has told us is people who have power don't give it up willingly.
0: You also are, you know all in on the SPAC space. Um, that seems to be volatile, no doubt about it. The performance is down uh, after initial kind of move up. And there's still a lot of questioning about the transparency and what investors are getting. You got to be wary there.
6: So it, it depends on, on what you're doing. So we've got three funds in the SPAC space. One, SPCX, is 100% pre-merger SPAC you know, ten dollars in cash looking for a deal, and you know, we're buying those companies at under ten. So, you know, to me that's that's not a bad thing buying something for less than ten that you know worst case you're gonna get ten. Then we've got two D SPAC funds, one inverse and and one long based on the D SPAC index, that's volatile. That index moves. So, you know, we launched those funds about a month ago, the long funds up like 20 percent or something, and the, the short fund down about 20 percent. That, you know, those Lordstown Motors, QuantumScape Clover. Right. I mean, that's the stuff that, okay. that really is high octane.
0: All right, we're going to leave it on that note. Hey, Matt, uh, nice to get some time with you. Matt Tuttle, he's CEO and CIO of Tuttle Capital Management, joining us on the phone from Greenwich, Connecticut. FOMO and SPACs, that is certainly something he is looking at.
1: The train station, a perfect day for <laughs> to, uh, talk. to talk about trains, right? Infrastructure.
0: No doubt about it. <laughs>